and thanks for listening. This is Most Certainly True, a podcast of Grace Lutheran Church in downtown Milwaukee. God's grace is for you, and if you're in the Milwaukee area, we'd love to get to know you. Please visit www.gracedowntown.org to contact us, find out about worship times, or learn more about what we're up to in Milwaukee. That's www.gracedowntown.org. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Brian Hockman here with Most Certainly True Podcast. Glad to be back and coming to you with another episode of, of our podcast, and I'm here with Pastor Jim Hebner. Good to see you today, Pastor. I'm glad that we're doing the podcast once again. What a glorious day it is. Sun is out. It's a little cold here in the state of Wisconsin, but what do you do when this is time of the year? It's bright, though, and I will, I'll take <laughs> yeah. the sunshine over right. over a little bit of cold. It does make you sure. feel a little better in spite yeah. of the freezing cold out there. But You can sit in the window, and it doesn't matter what, what the temperature is on <laughs> the other outside. side, right? <laughs> make sure you're on this side of the window or the inside of the window, not the out, right? <laughs> How was your trip to Oshkosh this weekend? Made a quick trip to see some grandkids. Had a good time. It was nice to see them. You can't think of anything cuter than watching five-year-olds when our granddaughter was doing her YMCA Saturday basketball, quote, game, unquote. <laughs> Quotes. Yeah, six-year-olds and five-year-olds, these were the kindergartners, so they stand there. With, Huddle around the ball, right? Well, it, the, 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 the little group is there, and they have some very fine men and women who are assisting, like coaching, you know what I mean? And So they line them up to stand at different places around the basketball key, and then some girls are on the outside with the ball, and the go. concept is eventually one of them will somehow move it forward toward the basket and to get within the range of yeah. a five-year-old yeah, that's right <laughs> lower the hoop to eight feet and but it's really cute they all say okay defense put your hands up so they're all standing there with hands in the air it's just the cutest thing you ever saw yeah. my kids all started soccer from little on and <laughs> on that age i suppose it's easier in basketball to say stand here on this marking you don't yeah. have that on the soccer field so yeah. you end up with this cloud of five-year-olds yeah. that, <laughs> with the ball somewhere in the middle yeah, and it squirts out every once in a while but all of them are it... <laughs> en masse chasing that same ball yeah it's pretty fun yeah sounds Very good, good. you awesome. had a good weekend too i did obviously we get yeah. to sunday it's always a highlight right we did a daddy daughter dance on saturday night Ooh. which was we didn't do those in alaska so this was yeah. the first time do they I rate that daddy that. and daughter which dad has the best uh, footwork and the dance steps they did not yeah so too bad you surely would have got the first prize yeah you think I'm so i'm confident in that <laughs> <laughs> how fun so i didn't uh it's it's kind of interesting my kids go to St. Jacoby School, and um, obviously I'm the pastor here and not a member there, so um, I don't know a ton of the parents there. I've gotten to know some through sports, but standing in a dark gymnasium is not a real, um, n- not the most convenient way to get to know people or right. re- even recognize the person that's standing next to you. So, <laughs> no, it was fun. I got to dance with them a little bit until they found their friends, and then I did a lot of kind of standing in the corner, but it was a good time, and uh uh, I enjoyed that we had the opportunity. Wonderful. So, and then, uh, yes, yeah, Sunday I got a, uh, the privilege to to preach this weekend. So that's really that great. A joy opportunity to do that. Nothing like it, right? Teaching yeah. and preaching is what we're here to do. Right. And, and then our Monday night service, we got hit with that snow, <laughs> and that uh, a little smaller crowd dented into our 
our attendance. We had about fifteen. I th- I um, got up to almost uh, almost a couple dozen. Okay. I think we broke twenty. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So I, I was guess. looking out there. Oh like, yeah, I guess I got fifteen as we started, and a few trickled in. Yeah. Yeah. But we got to um, just put everyone on one side, and I got to preach from the front. Yeah. Um, which is the way I was used to doing it in, a, in my, our little chapel up in Eagle River. So um, I enjoyed getting Instead of to, climbing into a big old pulpit. Yeah. 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 Didn't feel as constrained as, uh, as the <laughs> pulpit up high and yeah. up the stairs. But so. you have to admit, though, when we have our pulpit, there is an advantage because you get better sight lines and you can actually see and people can see you and yes. in a larger space. That's what yeah. it you, has you to need, be. You need something like that yeah. in, a, in a space and with, yep. the, with the numbers we have. I was not speaking badly about our pulpit. I know you wouldn't. <laughs> it yeah. just takes some getting used to. <laughs> <laughs> Architecturally, it says with our church architecture, God comes to us in word and sacrament. We yeah. have a an high and elevated spired canopy over the pulpit, and we have a, sp- a canopied altar and the spired gorgeous font. And yeah. architecturally, the furniture of the chancel says to any visitor, anybody, this is how God communicates. Yep. One of my favorite symbols in the sanctuary there is the dove that sits up above the in, canopy in, in over the pul- your head in, in the, the pulpit, pulpit. Yeah. Yep. because it's the holy spirit who is taking the gospel out yeah. uh, into the hearts and lives of the of the people who are yeah. here back in the 1950s when the deci- decision was made to stay downtown and not close our doors and give up ministry in downtown then they did some interior changes and actually that canopy over the pulpit was gone and thrown away and the pulpit cut off the pedestal so they kept the dove though and they put the dove in the baldachin, which is the canopy over the altar. Okay. So, you know, almost 40 years ago when I started this, a dove is up there. But once we got that in 1989, rebuilt that canopy over the pulpit and the pulpit on the pedestal, we got ah. the dove back where it's supposed to be. Okay, that Because we had pictures. That dove's been flying around, That huh? dove has been <laughs> flying. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah. So they recognized the, the um, significance of that symbol and didn't right. want to... Which maybe it. for podcasters, it's also good to remind them that the dove is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit always works with the Word of God. And wherever the Word of God is, the Spirit is working. They are always together, not yeah. separate. Right. So it's appropriate for a place where the Word of God is proclaimed that the dove is there. Even if you throw the shaldekel away. That's the, right. The Holy Spirit remains. He's still there. <laughs> <laughs> we have well, a really fun chapter that we're podcasting about this time and it picks up from the last couple of chapters this book we're exploring grace abounds begins with a view toward what scripture is and this is now the third of the three because we had the definition and background of how we got the bible and what doctrine means and then last time we took a look at um, the attributes attributes, the characteristics of god's word and now this time interpretation the use of the bible right, the proper use right. and then interpretation right. but before we get there yeah we've got a first i was hoping that this would happen i'm hoping that it happens again yeah uh, we got some emailed questions that's fantastic so, um, these will be about the the last lesson about the attributes of the bible but i thought we would uh, and also take a chance I, to talk the, about uh, those the question email that you had there is giving us a chance to peek ahead at the coming chapter because it really uh that email questions really had a lot to do with asking about interpretation. Yeah. It'll be fun to talk about. Yeah, it'll be a good uh, transition from last time into this time. Yep. So the first question. I think it's a good idea that you can honor the person who was so kind, and uh, you can tell the person obviously loves their Lord Jesus and their holy word of of God and 
is passionate and interested, and so it's really cool they took the time to write and ask, and we're glad to talk about it. Yeah, um, we'll we'll read these questions anonymously, sure. um, and feel free that if you have a question on anything that you've read or or have always had a question about the topic and want to send yeah. me that email, feel free. So the first question is: When we say the Bible is inerrant, are we referencing are 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 we referring only to the autographs? That means the, the original, copies that originals. the inspired writer, the originals, wrote. Can we confidently say that the NIV, the New International Version, 2011, is inerrant, but the message translation is not? I think that's referring to a joke that I made in Bible class. That, oh, is that? That maybe the message translation translation isn't the best or most faithful to oh. um, well, that's, uh, the original you know, languages. It, you know, 40 years ago, we talked about the Living Bible. Okay. It was just, actually, the Living Bible... Is uh, I forgot the dude who did that was his name Taylor or Thompson. I I I'll think of it later. But anyway, um, was not a translation. It was a paraphrase, right? And in a way, that's what the message is. I, I, I would have say to admit so though that Eugene Peterson, I believe, is the man behind the message. Okay, and uh, he is an unbelievable scholar, is and okay. I personally really enjoy the message. I think that's really well done, very okay. well done. But it is a paraphrase, as a you paraphrase. Know? Yeah, so so more colloquial and more right. You, He's not the translating the original language sure. from Hebrew and Greek into modern English. What he's taking is a look at that, and then he's embellishing it in kind of modern speak by adding okay. some thoughts or words right. that are really are not in the original. Maybe slang so we call or it a paraphrase a little bit. Or okay. it's never it's never inappropriate or or so informal that you would right. say it's like you know street talk or anything. It's it's just so well done. It's artistic. It's almost poetic in the okay. way he uses. Uh, analogy and uh, the way he uses uh, simile and metaphor i mean he just he has a way of 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 capturing the sense of scripture while, while not translating in his paraphrase and i think it's very very well done i highly recommend it to people okay. who would like to um take their bible and read it and then read something else parallel to it it's sort of like a running commentary in a okay. way but i that, guess i never knew that that was the intention mm-hmm. of that translation i always yeah. assumed it was someone that was just kind of trying to dumb it down or trying to, well, no, to I, add a spin. I, yeah, and I, I don't think, I would never characterize Peterson's work there okay. in the message as a spin or dumbing down. It's just putting it in such common language, you know, but then adding and saying it in a way that isn't actually translating what the original says. It, it It's not. It's just, I wish I could have it here to give you an example, but sure. it's... Um, I have it on my shelf, and I use it regularly. I think okay. it's very helpful. Uh, it, it's uh, it's not a translation. I wouldn't call it that. It's really technically a paraphrase. Gotcha. And well done. Cool. Uh, so, uh, But right. anyway, back to the original So how about we take here. these questions backwards? Yeah. Can we confidently say that the NIV 2011 is inerrant? How would you answer that question? Well, it really bases on, I'm going <laughs> to You're not going to take it backwards. Take back, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Let's take them the right way then. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the autographs, we don't have the originals, right? But we right. can figure out what the originals are based on, you know, what the we studied in the first chapter. How did the canon develop? So when we have the recorded text and God found a way in his miraculous hand to preserve the Old Testament text, and we're very confident of what that was, copied very carefully by the scribes and everything. And the New Testament is, you know, we don't have the original, original letter to the Romans by Paul signed Paul. You know, it, it's, we have copies of copies of copies, but so many thousands, which you put them all together, you can figure out what the autograph of the original was. Right. And that's inspired. All of the original scriptures, Hebrew and Greek, are inspired. And when we talk about translations, we're in a different subject. Right. 
So the answer to the question that the emailer so kindly wrote, would we say the autographs are inerrant? Well, of course. The scriptures in original Hebrew and Greek are. God breathed. Right. All true. That's what inerrancy means, one of the characteristics of the Bible. But then we have the subject of translation. That's, that's an art and a science at the same time. How do you take one language and transfer it, translate it, carry it over into a new language? Sure. What you're trying to do is two different things at the same time. You're trying to make it accurate as possible so that you actually, in your translation in a new language, say what the original Hebrew or the original Greek said. But at the same time, when you're putting it into this new language, whatever it may be, you want to make it speak in that language so that people can understand it. We will often use the word readable. So my analogy has always been, or a story about that is, if you would get a letter from someone who speaks German and they write a letter to you in German and you would want to translate that, you would translate it into English. But there are certain ways that Germans talk or speak that if you translated it word for word, literal word for word for word, exact translation, it doesn't make good English sense. For example, right. if I would say to you, Vigatus Ihnen heute, which we would say in English, how are you today? But in German, literally, how goes it by you today? We just don't talk like that in English. Right. So if you're going to translate, you translate accurately. That's one point. Try to convey but the you meaning. also do that in a way that's readable and understandable. Right. And uh, since translations now of the Bible are in the thousands in number for all the languages on earth, practically. Uh, we are most familiar with English translations, and I've been around long enough on the planet that the one that was most familiar in the English-speaking world for 350 years was the King James Version. But I often challenge people that if you want to use that, God bless you, use it. It's a beautiful translation. But you also should be familiar with Shakespeare. <laughs> right. Because it's contemporary. And wouldn't you agree there is a danger in treating a translation as if this is the word that God intended for, for yeah. me to have, or this is the only right translation? Exactly. There's actually church bodies that are built on yeah. the King James is the only, is the only version. Right. And that's, um, and that's misunderstanding that's, inerrancy versus translation. That is misunderstanding. You got yeah. that exactly right. The same thing with the NIV 11, just because we're using that in our congregation, for example, doesn't mean it's perfect. Right. There are other translations that are just as good as the New International Version 2011. I think 2011 uh, edition of the NIV is quite good. Why do I say that? Because all the pastors in our church body are required to learn the original languages so we can compare translations and evaluate whether they are accurate and readable. Right. And so, you know, the the English Standard Version, ESV, the EHV, the new one that's out, is that Evangelical, I think, Heritage yep. Version? Uh, the uh, Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, and the NIV 11, these are all really very, very, very fine, wonderful translations of the original. They are accurate and readable. Would I, if I'm translating, maybe pick out some passage from the NIV 11 or ESV and say it could have been done differently or sure yeah yeah but in general we don't have to say that a translation is inerrant because translations might have passages that aren't translated very accurately yeah you might even hear a Wells pastor from the pulpit say I think they kind of missed the point on this one <laughs> it's never 
they came to the wrong conclusion or this passage teaches false doctrine, but right. it could be I stated think more perhaps clearly. this was the focus yeah. or it misses the richness of the concept because it shows this word instead yeah, of that. Yeah. I generally um, in preaching try not to make a reference to the translation we're using NIV 11 as, well, this is really woefully inadequate. And if I would be, right. trying, you know, but you know, you, you do in preaching once in a while, if the passage comes up that you think could have been tighter or clearer or something, explain it in a way that without denigrating the translation. Well, I don't want right. people who are listening to ha- lose confidence in their Bible. Right. I could hand them a translation of the Bible from the German, Luther's translation, and say you can be confident this is the Word of God. Could Luther have translated a few passages differently or better into German? Probably. I don't know my German that well. I could hand people the NIV. As Deutschlander, he'll tell yeah, you. Yeah, that's right. He would know. <laughs> uh, you know, it, the same thing with handing them a 20, 2011 edition of the NIV or right. handing someone a, a Spanish translation of the Bible. If it's been evaluated, somebody really knows Spanish well and compare the original Hebrew and Greek and it's very readable, this is this is your Bible and this is a good Bible, this is a good translation. Right. But we just don't talk about translations as inerrant. Right. I think we've... Uh, We've exhausted that one. We're we're so good. We've answered the second question, too, I believe. yeah. Do you believe that the Wells interpretation of the Bible is inerrant? Is grace abounds inerrant? (laughs) Yeah. And that that really gets us into the next chapter, where the podcast is going in the chapter we're in and where we're going to eventually talk. um, Just I'll make one mention here that there is such a thing as Sunday Bible class. We'll talk about it, too. But um, it's the subject matter of interpretation. How do you get the meaning from the Bible? And... That was clearly mentioned, I believe, in this book, Grace Abounds, and we should be very clear when we're talking about this subject, because that's what's coming up now in this question, and the kind submitter of email questions yeah. has in the next one, too. Yeah. The, his question about, or this person's, I don't know if it's a male or female, their yeah, question about Grace Abounds made me think of the, the uh, last part of this chapter, where why do we hold the Lutheran confessions in high regard? Yeah. It's not because they're inspired or inerrant, but it's because they contain God's word and they properly espouse God's word. They, they reflect. So I would say we could hold the book Grace Abounds in high regard because it is an exposition of Scripture yeah. and it's faithful to right. the truth of God's word. And we would never say it's inerrant. Right. Just, there might know, be a typo in there. Right. I haven't come across one yet, but there might be. And the, 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 the phrase that's used here in the email comes up later with, you know, the phrase, the Wells interpretation, or in another question comes up about the church's interpretation. The The book Grace Abounds makes the point very clearly when you're getting the meaning from Scripture, when we you have the proper use of Scripture, we have these four principles. We look at the Bible and without any preconceived notions and all of our baggage and all of our, you know, if I believe, for example, that 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 babies can't be believers, that's my preconceived notion. I just right. I just have that's this the in bias my, you're my mind. It's my bias. With. I already you know babies can't be have faith. They just can't. That's that's my bias. Let's pretend. I don't believe that's true. By the way, <laughs> good. But if if Good I did, disclaimer. if I did, <laughs> of course I would look at the passages that talk about baptism for all nations. Babies are part of all nations, and I would say no. But that's my problem because I'm bringing my baggage and my bias. If I have a clear head and mind and just open, let God speak, it would be very obvious from the Bible passages you read about baptism, that babies are to be included, they're in all nations, yeah. and it'd be very obvious that babies can be believers. So that's right. just by way of illustration. So 
to to use the phrase the Wells interpretation, or um, it's going to come up in other conversation. You know, what does your church say about such and such, or how does your church right. interpret, or what did the church historically in the middle Middle Ages interpret? What's the church's interpret? That's just really not using the phrase interpretation in a way that's accurate. We right. would never say that. Uh, often would, that's used to kind of end an argument. Well, that's your interpretation. Exactly. And my interpretation is yeah. just as good. Yeah. Well, no, scripture says some things and it doesn't say other things. Yeah. And, the point yeah. of the book is that if we're going to get the meaning from the Bible, the proper use, it, proper use of it and use it well and rightly, we want to let the passages stand as they are and let them speak in one simple, clear sense. The passage says what it says. And then we would also understand that if there's a passage that we don't quite understand the meaning completely, we keep reading and let Scripture interpret Scripture. The context right. will unfold, and even the context not only narrow within that paragraph or chapter but or book, but the whole Bible. And then we also know that there are passages that are sometimes head-scratchers. They're difficult. Well, what, what do we do? Again, we keep reading and let the easier passages of Scripture that are clear, clearer in our own mind, humanly right. speaking. They're all clear in God's way of describing it, uh, the easier passages shed light on the more difficult. And finally, we have that cool phrase, analogy of faith, that analogy these doctrines, analogy of faith, that they all fit together and they all have their purpose in Christ. That they this, all point to the cross. They yeah. all point to, to so, Christ. And so if your conclusion comes to something that doesn't yeah. equal salvation When you're Christ. building, for example, when you're building doctrine, like we believe in, in infant baptism, we believe in the doctrine of Holy Trinity or the real presence of the Lord's Supper, we look at each and every passage where that is described and talked about and put them all together. That is the analogy of faith. And then we can come up with, it's not speculation that God is three in one and triune. It, the Bible says it very obviously and very often. Right. And isn't, since you brought it up, isn't that interesting that the Trinity is one of those things where human reason can't yeah. figure it out, but People tend to believe that. Yeah. Uh, but then there are other places where real presence in the Lord's Supper or um, w where, oh, well, that doesn't jive with reason, and so now I'm going to change it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, reason needs to take a back seat to God's Word, yeah. and what God's Word clearly says needs to win the day regardless of if we can understand it, whether yeah. it fits with our reason or not. Yeah, Professor Deutschlander makes that point in the chapter, two by talking about reason in Luther's words, would be, you know, our one of God's greatest gifts to us, but also can be our worst enemy. <laughs> right. You know, because um, reason's role is to be a servant, is to be uh, ministerial, and Scripture's role is to be the teacher, the, the magisterial role of Scripture. So when Scripture speaks, it speaks. We use our human brain to figure out language and grammar and uh, similes and metaphors and figures of speech and styles of literature that's all fine that's good yeah your reason is what tells you that poetry is going to look poetry a is poetry than history right and um, helps you to understand the context of, of and that's the a, genre that you're reading and it's a great gift that god gives us human reason that we can learn and grow and understand but scripture still is scripture right. god speaks and there it is so right. we have those four principles and rules you might say of using the bible properly the proper use of scripture and interpretation and then we can get back to where we were here. So Should we do the third question? Yeah, the, I think we answered that second one. I hope we did anyway, that we would never claim or even use the phrase, the Wells interpretation. Right. That's just an inappropriate, that's a, that's that's a oxymoron, actually, like jumbo shrimp or, you know, 
right. sanitary landfill <laughs> or airline food. You know, those are two words that just, that we don't use it that way. Right. All right. So question number three. Galileo was convicted of heresy in 1633 for holding to heliocentrism, the theory that the sun is the center of the solar system which was deemed formally heretical in 1616. The church based this determination on several verses, which, if taken in their clear and simple sense while letting Scripture interpret Scripture, state that the earth is stationary and the sun moves. He's got some references there. Yeah. Maybe we should pause right there, actually. Um, if we actually apply the rules of the proper use of Scripture, that is, uh, unfortunately, in an inaccurate understanding. If we take the passages in their clear and simple sense in the passages listed, that is not what those passages are saying. The passages are not saying the earth is stationary and the sun moves. Even the one in Ecclesiastes where it talks about the sun rising and setting. Right. This is poetry and it's Ecclesiastes and it's using vivid language. We still always talk that way. The sun rises and sets. Right. And that that's how we view it, and that's how we talk. Even though we fully know the earth is rotating around the sun, it's not wrong or sinful to say, from a human perspective, the sun rises and sets. Right. And so Joshua chapter 10, where the sun stands still actually did in the sky, um, that's uh, language from human perspective, that as the people who are sitting on earth saw the sun, it, it stopped moving across the sky. Um, right. How God did that, I don't know. But he did do that. Right. Um, and it, we don't have to feel like that is a scientific statement on the universe. That's that's a statement that shows from a human perspective what they saw. And it was a miracle. It was a miracle. And so how God could do that, I don't know. But that's okay. Right. <laughs> it's just, it's, it boggles the mind. But so I think... certainly understand that with where our science is now that sees that the sun remains stationary all the time yeah. and it's the earth that moves. Um, right. But that doesn't mean that, that those scriptures are, are inaccurate or wrong. Right. They're simply spoken from the perspective of the person who's standing on. And all, right. Earth. And all these other passages that are referenced here from first Chronicles or Psalm 93, Psalm 96, Psalm 104, talking about the earth's foundations or the earth can't be moved. I mean, that's really True, though, from our perspective, as we look at what God designed and created, right? And we and this is given the fact that you lived in a place in the world where there were a lot of earthquakes, where the earth moves. Yeah. But in general, would we not say that, you know, terra firma is just that? That's a Latin phrase for the firm, right? The earth is solid. That's from our view, and that scripture talks about it that way. I think that's interesting, though, when you're looking at, for example, Ecclesiastes in this poetical start, He's trying to give up, well, trying, he's giving a, us a Bible book here, King Solomon is, of what life would be like without God. And so the whole theme of it starts out that everything is like a vapor on a cold winter day when you just breathe out and it disappears, meaningless, meaningless. So what does a person gain from all labor under the sun? Generations come and go, isn't that true? But yep. the earth remains forever. From a human perspective, people come and go and die, right? Generations are born and disappear, but the earth is still the earth. That's really what the Bible writer is clearly saying. The sun rises and sets and hurries back or it rises. 
Well, from our perspective, sure. that's true, right? The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its courses. We would not say that every single time that the wind is blowing, it is in a circle, in an eddy, or in a hurricane. That's taking this passage and not reading it correctly. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams, uh, to the place the streams come from, there they return again. Well, that's just observing what it looks like. Right. And you, the same thing would be true for these other passages. So then the question goes on to ask about the 24-hour days of creation. Yeah. And science changed in that what's in the center of the universe question. Is it possible that science could change and we might come to a different opinion or conclusion about the days of creation? Right, I think Why again, don't we speak to that? Yeah, and again, the whole point is understanding what we mean by interpretation. That the Roman Catholic Church would have a geocentric view as, quote, their interpretation, that doesn't mean that that's the right way to interpret the scriptures. Right, and they overstepped by making a scientific theory right. uh, tantamount and equal right. to scripture. In the same way we would say there isn't such a thing technically as Wells' interpretation or the Roman Catholic Church's interpretation, really there, really there is only one interpretation that's right, it's God's. Right. Scripture interprets Scripture. Let God speak. So then we have to apply that principle, not to what the church says about science or mistakenly and is overturned. or what. That's not the point. Yeah. The point of the whole chapter that we're going to read here in this, and we are reading in this book, and the point of understanding the proper use of Scripture is let God speak. So then the question comes, Genesis chapter 1. Yeah, what does God speak? What does God say? Genesis chapter and one. what God says in Genesis chapter 1 is he uses human language, which is an amazing thing anyway, that God would want to communicate with people. Why would he even do that? He just loves us so much, he's going to give us his love letter. And so that's what he gives us yeah. the Bible for. And he says, you want to know where it all started? Well, here it is in Genesis 1. And what he says, he says. And when there's consistency in Genesis chapter 1, there was evening, there was morning, day 1. And then day two and day yep. three, day four. Which lines up with the Hebrew rendering of time, which has an evening period first and then a morning period. Well, actually, uh, if you really stop and think about it, the Hebrews later talked about like their Sabbath starting in the evening when the sun goes down. But a careful reading of Genesis 1 is indicating that they too understood that they, the beginning of the day is the morning, okay. the light time, and it ends with the day. That's, that's actually how the Genesis 1 record goes, how they set up their Sabbath time. They would still talk about a Sabbath maybe beginning with Sabbath supper on that evening, but the day begins in the morning. That's how, okay. they, that's how they talked. It's kind of an interesting thing. Sure. But when you look at the chapter and let God just talk, then you get to the fourth day where you have seasons and days and years. He's matching up the light time and the darkness time, which he calls day one, and then later it is called day two, day three. In day four, now we can see the use of this word day, and he applies it to the light time, usually generally right. a 12-hour period, but he also uses the word day for the entire light and darkness cycle, day one, day two, day three, day four. And he's in chapter in chapter, in chapter one on day four, he's talking about having these now created lights, sun, moon, and stars, that will govern the seasons, days, and years. The context of chapter one makes it very, very obvious what we're talking about here is a 24 our day, or the word day can mean the light time. Right. And there, there'd be language that could be used if we're talking about periods of time or millennia right. or whatever, um, and God right. doesn't use any of those words. So he to doesn't. claim that 
Um, the creation account from Genesis 1 is a metaphor, or a simile, or a word picture, or fairy tale, um, isn't properly interpreting yeah. scripture because there's nothing within the context that leads us yeah. in that direction. This, this, this is getting now to this analogy of faith business because I know that is true that we had talked in one chapter about fundamental and non-fundamental doctrines. Right. And there are people who do believe that Jesus is their Savior from sin, their only reason for eternity, and they struggle with understanding the creation account, and they're not real sure about it. I would, I would say that that's sad, but if you push that and push that and push that and question God's ability to make the world in six natural 24-hour days, what you're eventually saying is you're going to be contradicting what the scriptures say about the Lord Jesus, who was present at creation, right. and then you're calling into question whether he's a good enough Savior. What else can't he do? Because if he is the good enough Savior, he has to be both human, but he has to be fully God. And the letter to the Colossians makes that very clear. He is the one responsible for creation. We can very clearly say God the Son is present. And then we have in verse chapter 1 of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, Verse 14, verse 20, how does it begin? And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. And then you look at John chapter 1, in the beginning, in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, the word. capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, God the Son, present in creation with God the Father, God the Spirit, hovering over the waters. All three persons of the Trinity active in creation. So to deny that what God actually says is history in chapter 1 is getting you got to be careful because what's the next thing you could deny that Jesus is God? You know that this is a slippery yeah. slope. And how do we know that that word comparison that you just made isn't just a fanciful "I dreamed that up" or "Hey, isn't that neat"? Mm-hmm. You apply the principles of biblical interpretation, right. and further on in that chapter, it tells that us the word became flesh. Oh, the word became flesh and made his dwelling mm-hmm. among yes. us. That's Jesus. That yeah. has to be. There's, There's no question. Interpret scripture. scripture, right? And yeah. so, going back to Genesis chapter one, it's an interesting, fascinating look at language. So, whether you use the original language, the word for day is yom. It, in English, it looked like the letters Y and an O and an M. Yom. Um, in German, it's Tag, T-A-G. Right? In English, D-A-Y, day. Um, in Spanish, it's what's dies, isn't that? Buenos dias, right? Dias. I think that dias is God, but dias, right? A dia. I wasn't prepared for so, podcast to be multilingual. Yeah. Well, today. anyway, you you can take <laughs> um, my point is you can take any language on Earth and look at their word day. It could be in Hebrew, it could be in in Greek, it could be in German, it could be in English. You look at that word day. You only have three choices of meanings. It's either the light time, as you know, night and day which is roughly 12 hours, more or less, right. depending on where you are on the planet and what hemisphere. Or it's a 24-hour, the day, a day. Or it's a generation. Back in Abraham Lincoln's day, they in fought the day. Civil War. Right. Back in Grandpa's day, the automobile was invented. Right. So how long is a day, a generation? How long is that? Well, most people would figure, uh, well, of course, ever since the Bible's been in print, the times of Moses, Moses tells us, and it's been true ever since, a generation is when a human adult is in their adult prime. So what is your prime? It's 25 to 40 years, roughly speaking. Sure. And so it's, it's in there. It, but never, ever, ever in any language ever 
those day day or talk in German or yom in Hebrew or whatever you want to pick, in no language ever on the face of the earth does day ever mean eons, right? Or an forever, or you know, like you have to come in with that bias that says God couldn't do it, or I want evolution to be true, or um, you you have to come into the reading with a reason why it's not the clear understanding. Mm -hmm. And God actually uses the third business of day, meaning a de- defined time, but longer than 24 hours in chapter 2, verse 4. doesn't show that way in English, but it is in Hebrew. But in chapter 1, you've got these three choices for the meaning yom, Hebrew day. They can be a generation, or it can be the light time. Or it can, and if you just let God talk through Genesis 1 and see the consistency of evening and morning with day one, evening, morning, day two, evening, morning, day three, and then you have seasons, days, and years, evening and morning, day four, the consistency is obvious that he's either using it for the light time, 12-hour roughly, or the 24-hour cycle. Added to that, Scripture interprets Scripture. You had mentioned earlier in our little preparation time. Yeah, Genesis, or Exodus, Exodus chapter, chapter 20, 20. When talking um, about the uh, God Sabbath. Pat- God patterns the work week that he wants his people to have yeah. working six days and then resting right. on the seventh. Um, it's in the third commandment section of, yeah, the, of verses Exodus nine chapter and 20 of chapter um, 20. He says, and it just, it would you make, are yeah. to work six days and rest because that's how God created the world. Yeah. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth to see and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh. And so when he says to the Israelites earlier, six days, you shall labor and do your work in the seventh day. It just makes no sense that he would be saying to the Israelites, I want you to work for six indefinite million-year epochs or eras and then rest for the seventh era or epoch or eon or... That's that's just not how language works. And it's just... When you look at Exodus 20, when you look at Genesis 1, let God simply speak, then uh, I know that the uh, email submitter of questions was a little uncomfortable with my referring to Genesis as a 24-hour period, but I'm happily to do, happily to do so because that's what the scriptures say. It's right. not science. It's not a yeah, contradiction it, to science. It, it's simply what God says. Right. That's it's more than just, it's not this, the Galileo thing yeah. where there was one understanding that was clung to and now another understanding yeah. came about through scientific research. This is actually a and it's not, letting Scripture speak. It's not my interpretation. Right. It's not the Wells interpretation. It's not a Lutheran or a Catholic or a Methodist. It's, a, it's just simply what the Scriptures say. And that that you can't get around that, and that's what it is. And I, is it possible that there are people who struggle that God made the world in six natural days? Of course. You know, if you're going to go down that path, and, you know, there are a lot of wonderful dear committed Christian people who love their Lord Jesus dearly who are surrounded in their educational experience with the evolutionary theory. And I understand that, you know, whether it's from elementary or high school or secondary education. And their their um, their trust in the simple, clear words of Scripture in Genesis 1 and chapter 2 and 3, for that matter, and the rest of the Bible is challenged. I get that. Right. And that that's, that's a sad thing. We live in a world where it's challenged. But again, let God simply speak. You know, you can go all kinds of arguments about the, you know, people ask questions. How in the world can there be such a thing as carbon dating, a scientific process to dig coal out of the ground and say it's like, whatever, 4.5 billion years, and then to look at the Genesis account and 
and to read through Scripture and to say, well, we don't know how old the earth is. But I don't know if I'd go more than ten or 12,000 B.C. for creation. Right. It might be. For people who say it's like 4,000 B.C., it, it, it definitely, they, they are misreading Genesis chapter 5 and the generations that God gives and other parts of generational language that God uses. I, I think it, but I wouldn't say 4.5 billion. Well, how, how, do, how can I say that? Well, isn't it obvious that God made the world day three and put coal in the ground? He made the world with age. Adam and Eve were not infants. They were adults. When he planted trees on day three on that ground, they weren't all saplings. These are trees. You, did it have rings or not? I don't know. But if you cut it down and it did, it might have 100 rings. Yeah. Got but it's a day a old. Ma- a mature universe. I think another thing that people often fail to take into account yeah. is the devastation that the flood would have had. Absolutely. Um, that th- this idea that there was a consistent wear and tear on the earth uh, forgets that there was a worldwide flood um, <laughs> that certainly would have been more than a blip on the radar. That's right. Um, you don't need a million, billion years to get 10,000 f- lakes in Minnesota with an ice age when you've got a flood account. Or when the, yeah, the floodgates are opening and the springs <laughs> from the depths are And explodes from below. Could, yeah. a, could a Grand Canyon be carved by a floodgate opening? Yeah. Something the world's never seen before? Or it think about the could. flood was... Uh, 375 days, a year and 10 days, and the waters receded for 225 of those days. And could sandstone be cut with God moving water in that? Well, he could do it in an instant, but, you know, it's just. So going back to where we are, the point isn't to make these arguments from geology or science about how believable creation is. The point is just to look at the words of God in chapter one of Genesis and let God talk, let God speak and let him say. Yeah, which really is the first uh, the first principle of interpretation mm-hmm. is that there's a yep. simple meaning. Yep, um, and we use the illustration of Exodus chapter 20 to do the second principle, that Scripture interprets Scripture. And uh, the third one, if there's difficult passages, that it can be they can be understood in the light of others. There's some difficult passages that we can think of. I, I think that you have one in mind about Jesus making it sound like you're going to go to heaven by works. Maybe you can talk about that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, like uh, the sheep and the goats from Matthew chapter 25. And yeah. he talks about... Um, the people who are on the good side, the people who are going to get the blessing is because they, um, Jesus says, you helped me, you fed me. And then he says, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did, you did for me. me. Um, and then they get the eternal reward because of the things that they did. And the people who didn't do those things, they get <laughs> damnation. He yeah. separates the sheep and the goats based on actions, based on activity, yeah. based on obedience or yeah. lack thereof. Which is parallel to what he states in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 of Matthew. It sounds as though those who work, the right works. Yeah. Right? Not it's, everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the ones who do, uh, the, do will the will of, of my Father. Of my Father in well, heaven. so then we apply that. Okay, that's a difficult passage, it's a head-scratcher, but we let Scripture interpret Scripture. The other rule that we have, the other principle, and we have the same one, let easier, clear passages yep. explain those that are are more difficult. And then we go to John's gospel when Jesus himself is talking about uh, the fact that maybe we should pull it up in our Bibles when he says sure. the same thing. While you're looking that up, I'll, um, yep. when I've taught that, I've often said, if this were the only passage that told us about how a person yeah. gets to heaven, yeah. you might have to say, it sounds like there's two options. Or you might even <laughs> say, this passage seems to lean in the direction of right. works, and I'm the one who's responsible for getting me to heaven. John chapter 5 and early, it is about a year into his ministry, Jesus was in Jerusalem and he said, 
Don't be amazed that the Son of God is going to be the one who's judging the earth, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Talking about Judgment Day. And then he says, those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Well, what does he mean by that? Those who have done good. All you got to do is turn your page in your Bible and listen to him a year later talking in a sermon, uh, the Bread of Life sermon, after the feeding of the 5,000. And it makes it very clear when he says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one who is sent. And later in verse 40, my Father's will is that everyone who looks at the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. So what does it mean to do the will of the Father? It means to believe in Jesus. So right. there so, is not a conflict there and a contradiction. Right, so you have that, um, the works image, in addition to all the other passages yeah. of Scripture, the overwhelming number of passages that talk about Christ as the one who saved by grace, who raises dead sinners. Christ yeah. is the one who gives us uh, the free gift of grace. He's the right. actor. We're the passive ones. The he point is, us. Uh, we don't choose him. Proper use of the Bible is not approaching our Bible with a scissors and cutting out. You can prove just about anything with a scissors by cutting out certain lines or phrases and saying, mm-hmm. "Aha!" But the Bible's the rules of pr- proper use include this analogy of faith everything fits together it all fits in christ and they can't they won't contradict each other if you read it in its entirety there was a history channel special one time that was ah. the secret codes in the bible yeah and basically it it said if you take the this hebrew manuscript and read vertically instead of horizontally so read up and down instead of across the page um, you can find these words, and here's what they really mean. Um, and I forget if it was a Wells question and answer on the website or if it was a seminary prof, um, but I love the answer that, that was given was, well, I suppose you could make the Bible say anything if you rearrange the letters, <laughs> which is true, right? <laughs> yeah. If you take one letter out of context and this letter out of context <laughs> and you put them next to each other, you can have words that say things that yeah. isn't, yeah. but you can't do that. You can't take... Yeah. words or verses or sections out of the context that they're in and then hold them up as here, right. now, this is the doctrine or this is saying something or this is making this promise about when the end of the world is going to be or or right. uh, this is what God really says. Or So to follow these rules that we're talking about and that Professor Deutschlander does in the book about the, you know, there's a simple sense and, it, and, then, and then that scripture interprets scripture and that Difficult passages explained by the easier, this analogy of faith. They all fit together in Christ, and they all make sense. Um, to carry those out in our own, it's really so that we can personally use the, it's what, what, use the Bible and apply it to our life because it really is a living love letter from God to us, right? So that yeah. we know that we're loved by him and go to heaven. I mean, that's really the ultimate point. I love the way he started the chapter bringing that up. What is the Bible? It's God's message of love to us. Has there ever been anything more important that's been written? Yeah. Um, Yet how quick and easily the devil uh, can tempt us to not treat it that way. Right. Um, That we're happy to have a Bible and it sits on my shelf and I'll, I'll get to it when I need it or, or right. Um, You might save the Valentine you got from your sweetheart or the love letter or, war brides that uh, are never going to throw away that correspondence that they got yeah, from their right. um, their husband who was off to war. But we don't often, um, somehow there's a disconnect that yep. none of those things make an eternity of difference, God's word does. Yep. 
but the devil is so crafty to get us to not have time or to make excuses or to right. not feel it as important. I think it's also important for us as we could go on forever in a podcast, but maybe just one brief mention about something about Bible interpretation. We do have this gift from God, human reason, and we do have another gift called human language, and we can use our reason in a servant way, in a ministerial way, to uh, understand that there is different styles of literature, there is different figures of speech. Just came up um, last week, one of the members here at our congregation asked me because he was in a conversation with his sister, not a member here, but they were, she was talking about Again, we're back to Genesis 1 as being all poetry. Well, there are portions of Scripture, Old Testament and New, that clearly are poetry. But Genesis chapter 1 is not. Not one of them. It's not one of them. And we know that just by knowing how human language works. So we read the Bible, prose is prose, and doctrine statements are doctrine statements, and poetry is poetry. Figures of speech are figures of speech. When Jesus was challenged by people around him, who really didn't like him, hey, you should go to Jerusalem because Herod is looking for you. He said, go tell that fox, referring to Herod. Well, Herod doesn't have a pointy nose and a bushy tail and four legs, or like the skin hanging here from your <laughs> your shelf that you have. Uh, it, you know, so it, it's, it's obvious, it's right. a figure of speech that Herod is, what, clever or, you know, whatever, right. tricky. And What's the difference between Jesus saying, I am the gate, and saying, this is my body. It's the same linking verb, right? Yes. There's nothing in that word. The difference is context, right? Yeah. He says, no one comes into the sheep pen except through me. There's That's the word picture. That's why Jesus is right. like a gate. Uh, when he says, this is my body in the Lord's Supper, there's, there not, is no. There's no picture. He's just saying, this is. This is a statement. Yeah. There was, there's human language that Jesus could have employed to say, let me tell you what I mean by that yeah. uh, that picture, but he doesn't. And in fact, the opposite inspired writer, uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, doubles down on real, yeah. real presence. And Is says, this not a participation in the body of right, Christ and the blood of Christ? Body and blood, bread and wine are all present here. Yeah. Yep. Um, so there you have several of these yep. scripture principles coming to prove that mm-hmm. real presence isn't a Lutheran interpretation. Right. It's letting God's word speak. And that's also true when we read portions of the scripture that are not just uh, poetic, but picturesque. You know, when when Daniel or Ezekiel receive visions and it's really phenomenal and gorgeous, or when Apostle John is given the vision, which we know as the revelation. Yeah, there's some really fantastic pictures, but by and large, throughout the book, the pictures are described in Old Testament terminology, we can figure out what the picture means. It's like going into an art museum and looking at a wonderful portrait or a wonderful painting. You know, you look at it and you see this scene and you can tell what it is in some cases. In some cases, it's a little fuzzier, but, I mean, you get the meaning from looking at the same thing with the visions in Revelation, the vision, singular. Right. You talked about the gift that human language is, and I think that's a good tie-in to the last um, pages where we talk about creeds and confessions. Yeah. We could go around and just tell people we believe in the Bible, and that wouldn't communicate very much because there's so many different um, ideas about the Bible. There's so many different things that that could mean. You hear we're a Bible-believing church kind of roll your eyes and say, oh, wait, oh, but what does that mean? Yeah. T- tell me what you say about the Bible. <laughs> uh, and that's why we have 
creeds, right? Creeds yeah. are the opportunity to confess our faith and then as they're used in public worship to be able to encourage one another right. in that same belief. Yep. I would have failed the quiz on the creeds, by the way. Um, if you would have asked me which creed did Athanasius write, yeah. <laughs> I would have gotten that one wrong, apparently. Yeah, yeah. He writes the Nicene Creed at the Council of Nicaea. That, and he proposed in the book that Athanasian Creed comes a little bit later. I had, in our studies way back, it was always a little closer in time to the okay. Nicene Creed in the mid to late 4th century, and the Nicene Creed being 325, the Council of Nicaea. Right. Apostles around 125. And Athanasian Creed, though, he makes a statement that maybe that's more recent research has uncovered that it probably was written a little later. But I always figured it for the late 4th century. But, I, you know, Ath I knew that Athanasius wasn't the author who was... They they claim that he was, but he, it's kind of interesting. That would have been a piece of trivia I lost. I would have known that the Apostles did <laughs> not write the Apostles' Creed, yeah, but yeah. I would not That's have known fun. that one. I also so. find it interesting, and, and it came up one time in conversation, about when confessions or creeds are written. They're usually written for a reason. And the the simplest one is the Apostles' Creed. You know, when Christians are asked, what do you believe? Well, here's the Bible. Go ahead. and it, It's done. Right. Here, read it. But that takes a while. But you can summarize it, and they did in the threefold nature of our God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, with a statement. But then controversy comes up. Ah, Jesus can't be God. Well, then you got to write another one that makes it clear he is. Oh, he can't be three in one. Then you got another one, Athanasian Creed. Right. He really is three in one. Later on in history, when there's controversy and there's a denial and these people who were strangely called Lutheran in the 1500s, well, you're a bunch of heretics. You are making stuff up. You're a bunch of pagans. You don't agree with history. And with what the church teaches, well, they stood up and said, we actually are basing everything on the scriptures, right. and we are what the early church has always said. And then they made their statement, Augsburg Confession, and so on. It, it, they're written for a purpose, right. to testify who we are, what we believe, and what we teach. Have you heard the um, the phrase that's that's tossed around in religious circles nowadays, deeds, not creeds? That's been around for a long time since pietism and before obviously right sure In the 17th century this concept that we don't need these creeds we don't need these statements of beliefs mm -hmm. we should just go out and live yeah jacob spainer right faith. in the pietistic yep. movement the early 1600s he was big on that and that's always a little ironic because deeds not creeds is a creed right it's a statement <laughs> of it's a statement of what i believe that's right um i had a kind of eye-opening moment with a member uh, at my former congregation. Uh, he was kind of pushing towards, let's do some contemporary worship. And he knew enough to know that um, in evangelical-style worship and what he, what he determined to be contemporary worship, that they didn't take the time to do creeds. So he kind of, in his head, equated liturgical worship equals creeds, non-liturgical worship equals no yeah. creeds. And we got a I got a chance to explore with him why is that? Why is it that um, your mega church or your evangelical church doesn't have a creed? Is it because there's something liturgical about a creed? No, not really. It's because their doctrinal stance doesn't allow for a statement of belief that unifies. They don't have uh, they don't they don't rally around doctrine. They rally around let's just celebrate the the few things that we have in common and let's not squabble about everything else. Right. Um, so it shows what they feel about doctrine by their omission of creeds. We can't talk about baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We can't talk about 
um, the resurrection of the dead. We can't talk about those things because we don't, those things don't unite us. Right. Um, and you just kind of saw the light bulb go on like, Oh, well maybe that, maybe it is a good thing that we do creeds because we can, we can rally around a, a common understanding of God's word and a confession of that faith. Right. And there are some doctrines, truths from Scripture that are not in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. There are some teachings of Scripture that are not in the Lutheran confessions, but we still believe them. Why? Because God says them in the Bible. It, you know, it's that, and all doctrines are important because they're all connected to each other and to Christ. Yeah, I had someone ask me once, "How many doctrines are in the Bible?" Well, that's a really difficult question yeah. because. Um, is that is Bethlehem a town in Judea? Is that a doctrine? It's true. It's not the normally Bible how we define tell, the word yeah, doctrine. I wouldn't normally right? say that, but if someone said that Bethlehem is not a town in in Judea, you might call that false yeah. doctrine, right? Because God's yeah. word says that it's true, and if God's word is true, yeah. then it stands. But that, if you take all the truths of Holy Scripture and categorize them in certain groupings about what the Bible is and about God and about humans and about our Savior and our salvation, our eternal goal, you could probably get a count by looking through the table of contents in this book, Grace Abounds, and sure. get pretty close or, or to the catechism. general rule of thumb. Or look at the catechism. You'd at least have right. the main headings You'd and ha then right. how many... How many things are hung underneath those main headings? There yeah. might be some disagreement. But. Look at the articles of the Augsburg Confession. Well, you know, there's 28. You know, you look at the small color articles. Well, there's fewer, but you know, they're they're grouped. Right. There's 11 controverted doctrines in the formula of Concord. It's so sure. you know, it. How many? You, it, they're grouped in certain areas, but not always. When these confessional statements are right. all of them talked about. And it's why you start in what is Scripture, right? Who's the author? What can we say about? It. And when we come to a verbal inspiration and an inerrancy doctrine of Scripture, now the, the numbers we attach on the other side don't matter yeah. because we know that God is the source and we know that everything that he says is true and we hold in high regard everything that the Scripture says. Yep. And because that is the case, we know when we talk about the Bible, this is most, most certainly, certainly true. true.